Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are living at this very moment in the heavenlies to pray to the Father on our behalf. And we want to respond to your invitation to come boldly before the throne of grace to receive the help that we need just when we need it. And Lord, I need help today. I need help to be able to speak in a very clear, understandable manner the simple message of your word. And I know that these people need help to understand what comes through the medium of humanity as I try to teach the Word of God today. So we petition you, believing that you're going to hear us. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Thank you, choir and other musicians for that beautiful remembrance of what Jesus is doing for us today. A carnival atmosphere prevailed that Friday in Jerusalem. The reason for all the hubbub was that three popular figures were about to be crucified. Two were patriots. They were zealots. They were insurrectionists. They were men who had probably sworn that they would go to their death to defend Israel from the onslaughts of the Roman government. These two men had robbed in the name of God. They had murdered ruthlessly in the name of God. They delighted whenever Roman blood was shed. They seethed with bitterness against their adversaries. The other man, rather than being a patriot, although he was, was first and foremost a prophet. He had a great following. Just earlier that week, he had entered the confines of Jerusalem to the songs of Hosanna, Hosanna, praise the Son of David. And now some of those same people had curiously made a turnaround in their attitude toward this man named Jesus from Nazareth. And instead of praising him, they were deriding him, they were cursing him and jeering at him. Jesus' cross which, by the way, was positioned, if you will recall, in the middle between the other two who were being crucified that day. And this, by the way, was a fulfillment of prophecy. The prophet Isaiah had said that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would be numbered among the transgressors. And Jesus himself had said that, I am a friend of publicans and sinners. I have come to minister to people who are downtrodden. Not the uppity-ups, but the people who are down under a heavy load of sin and guilt. And those who crucified him wanted to let that idea become reality by positioning him right in between these two criminals. His cross, the horizontal piece at least, was like an obscene gesture jutting out of the earth, pointed toward God. It was as if to say, God, we're blowing you off today in the common talk of our young people. Forget it, God. This is what we think of your idea about mankind. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, the 23rd chapter. All of you would agree, I'm sure, that it would have taken great imagination, if not faith, to see a king in Jesus as he was positioned there 
on the tree of Calvary. He was disfigured. He was humiliated. He looked like anything but a monarch that day as he was on the cross of Calvary. But one of those two thieves saw in Jesus a king. And where there is royalty, there is a kingdom. And he wanted to get in on that kingdom. We're going to read about that today. I'm going to begin with verse 32 of chapter 23 and read through the 43rd verse. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Isn't that a remarkable statement? The first word uttered from the cross, as we saw last week, was a prayer for the forgiveness of his executioners. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Now, let me pause just a moment. Put yourself in the place of those criminals who accompanied Jesus to the place of execution. Particularly, imagine yourself as being this one particular criminal who saw in Jesus something unique. As they made their way to the place of execution, he saw Jesus draped in all his weakness. There was nothing that would recommend that Jesus was a powerful figure as he was making his way to the place of execution. Was there absolutely nothing? And then when that man saw this title placed above Jesus' head on the cross in three different languages, the King of the Jews, God's Spirit began to work in his life. Verse 39 says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. What can we gather from this very moving, gripping passage of Scripture regarding life in Christ's kingdom? First of all, we can see what are the qualifications for a place in Christ's kingdom. The first qualification is very obvious to you, I'm sure. First of all, we must recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. This man was a man who was poverty-stricken in his spirit. I believe that's revealed if we were to have time to look back over into Matthew's gospel. Matthew tells us that the way these two criminals began relating to Jesus when Jesus was between them on the cross was identical. They began both by heaping insults upon Jesus. They began both by cursing Jesus. And as this man observed the reaction of Jesus to his abusing Jesus, a reversal began to occur in his life. He realized that this was no ordinary man who was being executed with him. 
he recognized the fact that in contrast to this man, he was spiritually bankrupt. He was a sinner in comparison, in contrast to Jesus. I think there was something very specific about what he observed. He observed the behavior of Jesus, and particularly what Christ had prayed, which we saw last week as the people tormented him while he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And as he witnessed that, something tremendous began to occur. Some miraculous happening began in his life. He saw himself as he really was for the first time in his life. I can imagine that this man was banking on making it into the kingdom of God because of his zeal for the nation of Israel. Hadn't he laid his life on the line in order that he could gain a place of great prominence in God's kingdom? But he saw the great poverty of his soul. You might say, hey, there's no way I can relate to the thief on the cross. I mean, I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anything from anybody. I mean, I've lived a very upright kind of life. I'm just pretty plain vanilla individual as far as sin is concerned. But let me tell you something. From God's point of view, a sin is a sin is a sin. In the book of Romans, Paul says, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I must, like this thief on the cross, before we can really become people who inherit the kingdom of Christ and find our place in His domain, must be people who see ourselves in contrast to Jesus as sinners. And by the way, whenever we get a real sense of who Jesus is, we will grow in our sense of our own sin in our lives. It happened to the Apostle Peter when he and his buddies were out there on the Sea of Galilee fishing all night, and they were getting ready to pull in their nets and call it a night and go home and get some rest. And Jesus called out from the shore to them. He said, just cast your net on the other side of the boat, guys. Peter said, but Lord, we've been fishing all night. Go ahead and do what I tell you, Peter. Just cast your net on the other side of the boat. And you'll recall what happened. Evidently, there was more than one boat in this fishing fleet and as they began to cast their nets on just the opposite side of the boat, and they began to drag the nets in, the boats became so filled with fish that they began to sink. And when they got on shore, the Scriptures tell us that Peter fell at the knees of Jesus and said this. Listen very carefully. When he recognized who Jesus was, he recognized that he was God. He said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever come once and for all to recognize your spiritual poverty beside the person and work of Jesus Christ? If you have, you've had that very same kind of reaction. And you may have it repeatedly because when we come into the presence of the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world and who was slain to take away the sins of the world, there's no other posture that you and I can assume but a posture of poverty as far as our spiritual life is concerned, and recognize we have great need. When Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus does not advocate poverty. He's not saying if you're poor, you've got a head start toward the kingdom of God. What He was saying there was that if you don't understand that you're a sinner, you might as well hang it up. That's the beginning point of coming to the realization of what you really need. 
Now, another qualification, it follows right on the heels of this first, is that there must be repentance of sin in our lives. Look again at the passage of Scripture, particularly at verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? Here was a man who had begun as an adversary of Christ, and all of a sudden he becomes Christ's advocate. He had began by detracting from Christ, and now we see him defending Christ. He had began as the foe of Jesus, and now we see him as the friend of Jesus. Don't you fear God, he asked his buddy who was on the other side of Jesus. That was his way of saying, I'm having a change of mind and a change of heart by virtue of what I have seen. And he rebuked his friend because his friend said, in verse 39, notice what he said, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And by the way, he said this more than one time. He said it repeatedly. He was saying, he kept on saying this to Jesus, as if to tempt Christ to come down off the cross, as if to taunt him. I believe he was calling the power of Jesus into question. Now, there may be someone here today who does just that. You say, well, if Jesus is really God, why doesn't he do some of these miracles today that he did when he walked on the earth? It is a dangerous thing to call the power of Jesus Christ into question, no matter whether it's in the first century or the 20th century. And not only this, he was, I believe, commanding Christ to do what he wanted Jesus to do. He wanted to use Jesus. I believe the world is divided basically into two categories of people. And you bear me out as you think about this. There are the people who give and the people who take. They are the people who willingly let themselves be used and the people who use. This thief who was ridiculing Jesus was one who was a regular user of other people. That is very, very dangerous. I believe that many people have walked the aisles of Baptist churches at least with the mentality of this other thief. They've come to join a church for what Jesus can do for them. They want no part of the cross as did the other thief. You notice the other thief was not concerned about his suffering. He was concerned about his sin, wasn't he? He didn't ask Jesus to take him off the cross, did he? He asked him to save him from his sins. The cross of Jesus has been denied its rightful place for too long in the Christian church. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus is not a bed of roses, folks. But following Jesus is the only satisfying life there is. If you've never committed your life to Christ, you know exactly what I mean. Your life is empty, it's hollow. You spent your life, whether it be 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or even 50 or 60 years, seeking some kind of fulfillment in your life only to find emptiness because you've been looking for fulfillment in the wrong place. The only place for fulfillment is in the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't Jesus tremendous? The way he dealt with this man, showing him his need for repentance of sin. And then this man fulfills the other qualification. He renounced all self-effort. and really didn't have a choice. Could this man do anything to save himself? 
Could he? I mean, where was he? He wasn't walking around in the marketplace of Jerusalem, was he? He was on the cross. He was fixed there. He could not walk in the paths of righteousness because his feet were fixed to the tree. He could not do good works with his hands to make himself right with God because they were nailed to the cross. He couldn't turn over a new leaf because he knew he was about to die. This man could do nothing to save himself. He's a classic example of how you and I come to know eternal life by grace only, by the work of God only. But fortunately for him, just like for us, his heart was able to function as were his lips. Turn with me to the book of Romans. 10th chapter. I want you to see this very familiar passage of Scripture. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified that is made right with God, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. This man, when he said in our passage of Scripture, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, fulfilled the qualifications for salvation. First of all, he believed in his heart that God was going to raise Jesus from the dead. He knew that Jesus was a doomed man. He knew that nobody ever got off the cross alive. He, in making this request from Jesus, was anticipating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how in the world did he get that? He got that because God's Spirit evidently revealed it to him. He was believing. It took great faith for him to believe in Jesus at this moment. And the thing which solicited this faith and brought this faith out of his life, I'm sure, was the way that Jesus related to him. He did not relate to him in condemnation. He related to him in love. When he looked at that fellow crucified individual, when he saw him, he looked into his eyes, he looked into his eyes with love. He saw him as a person who needed forgiveness. And he communicated that in the way that he treated him. There's a lesson for us who are Christians and agents of that love. We need to treat people who don't know Jesus not with contempt, but with love. We're not to condemn people who don't know the Lord. We're to commend them with the love of Jesus Christ. We're to reach out to them and embrace them regardless of what their condition may be. That's exactly what we have to do if we're going to reach these people. Jesus visualized the gospel before he verbalized it to this man. He hadn't said a word to this man evidently, but he had lived the gospel right before his eyes. I hope you understand something that I'm going to say. I hope I can make it clear enough for you to grasp this very simple fact. And in order for me to communicate this to you, I want to quote Jesus, something he said to Nicodemus. He said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and you will recall the background of that story. In the book of Numbers, we're told how the children of Israel were griping and complaining to Moses and to God. And God got fed up with it. I mean, he takes that stuff only so long until he dealt with them in justice. And he sent fiery snakes into the camp. And they bit these people, and these snakes were venomous. 
and they were dying, and they began to call out to Moses. Remember, they'd just been criticizing him. Now they come to him and say, Moses, please plead to God for us that he will redeem us, he'll save us. We're dying, don't you see this? Tell him we're dying. And Moses, in, in typical fashion, went to the Lord, and he petitioned God on behalf of these people. And the Lord said, make a bronze serpent and put it right out there in the middle of the camp. And what I want you to tell these people to do is just to look at that serpent. And if they'll do it, they'll be healed. Now let's use our imaginations a minute. What do you think their reaction would have been when they heard that idea? Are you crazy, Moses? I mean, we're in our tents dying, and you're saying if we'll just peek our heads out of the tent and look at that snake that's made of bronze on a cross, on a pole, we're going to be healed? Well, fortunately, several of those people did exactly that. But several died because it seemed foolish to them. All the thief that we're talking about today could do was look at Jesus and be saved. Now, what about the other man on the other side? He could do the same thing, but he didn't see in Christ someone who could save him. He saw something that was foolish and stupid and dumb. The very idea that a man hanging on a tree could save anybody. Now, some of you are going to react just that way to this message today. Here Jesus Christ is... And he's saying, I love you, I've died for you. The only thing you can do to find fulfillment in your life, forgiveness of your sins, is to give your life to me, and then you're going to be saved. Look to me. You can't work your way into my good graces. You can't work your way into my kingdom. All you can do is give yourself to me. But if you don't follow that idea and that prescription, you won't be saved. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus later on said, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Speaking of the cross that he was going to bear and spend his final moments on, saving you and me. Before we move on to look at the quality of life in the kingdom of Christ, I want to say one final thing. Just because this man gave his life to Jesus that day, recognized Jesus as Lord, he confessed the Lordship of Christ because when he said, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. He recognized that Jesus was sovereign, but just because he named Jesus Lord did not let him off the hook for his crime, did it? Now, a lot of people think if you come to Jesus, then, hey, he's going to bail you out. We've seen a lot of that lately. Henry Lee Lucas, is that the guy's name? I don't know if the first name's right, but the last one is, I'm sure. I don't know whether he's saved or not, if he knows Jesus, but he's going around broadcasting his being born again. I, I wonder sometimes if that's not a ploy just to get out from under the sentence of the crimes that he's committed. Velma Barfield. How many of you have ever heard of Velma Barfield? Any of you? Okay, we have some people who've heard of Velma Barfield. There's a book which she wrote. It's autobiographical entitled Woman on Death Row. She was sentenced to death by lethal injection November the 2nd, 1978, in North Carolina, making her the first woman in 22 years in the United States who was executed for a capital offense. Her offenses included, included murdering four people, and in those people were her mother and her future husband. In the six and a half years that she was on death row, she came face to face with Jesus Christ. And she came to know the Lord. And so the one who wrote the epilogue to her autobiography says, as she was walking 
through the place of execution and as she was laying on that stretcher and strapped to it, there was a, a look of serenity on her face and peace and she was moving her lips in silent prayer unto the Lord. God gave her the grace to face death. He gave her the grace to live in that period of time and she was used dramatically to draw people to Christ but she still had to reap what she'd sown. And you and I will reap the consequences, not in eternity, but in time, for any sin we commit in this life. Now, let's look rather quickly at the quality of life in the kingdom. Jesus did not respond to the ridicule, did he? When he was ridiculed by those priests and the scribes, and when he was cursed and spit upon and mocked and flogged, and the soldiers gambled for his garments, he did not respond to those taunts, did he? But he responded evidently immediately to this prayer request of this penitent thief. He said, Today you shall be with me in paradise. What is paradise? Paradise is summarized in the little prepositional phrase, with me. Heaven is being with Jesus Christ. We get caught up in all the geographical dimensions of heaven. We get caught up with all the decor of heaven. We need to get caught up with the King of heaven because He's going to be the focal figure. I don't think I'm going to be worrying about what kind of streets I'm walking on or what you look like or even what I look like. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be so caught up with the person of Jesus Christ that I'm only going to have eyes for Him. And heaven, paradise, is being with Jesus Christ. You can have heaven right now if you'll give your heart to the Lord and you live the way He wants you to live. Today, which dispels any idea of any kind of soul sleep. I mean, if you give your heart to Jesus, as this thief did, and he died that day, that very day he was with Jesus in paradise, not purgatory, paradise. Not some state of consciousness, but paradise. He was with Jesus that day with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, is what the Scriptures teach us. So when we give our hearts to Christ, we have this quality of life. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the other thief. What was his destination? Where did he end up? Well, probably he ended up in hell because he saw the very same thing that his partner saw. But he had related to Jesus the same way he'd related to life, with hard-heartedness. He didn't give his life to Jesus Christ. A lot has been said in times past about deathbed confessions. Have you ever had someone share the gospel with you and you say, well, I'm just not quite ready to give my life to Jesus Christ? I don't understand. I've heard people say, when I get ready, I'll give my life to the Lord. I think deathbed confessions are rare. I know they're presumptuous. Because none of us has the guarantee of a deathbed. Our lives could be snuffed out just like that in some accident. We might not have a prolonged illness before we die. You might not have that luxury of repenting on your deathbed. So I think it's presumptuous. I think it's very dangerous. It's like the preacher who was preaching on not putting off giving your life to Christ. And some person in the audience spoke up and said, What about the thief on the cross? Without missing a beat, this very wise preacher responded with this question, which one? Which one? But 
there is a sense in which it's never too late to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you have consciousness of your sin, your spiritual poverty, and if you want to repent of your sin and turn away from leading your own life, and if you renounce all self-effort to try to follow Jesus Christ, you can be saved and you can have eternal life. There was a war between Finland and Russia during the struggle for the reign of communism in that country of Finland. And seven red soldiers were captured and they were being held prisoner in town hall in a little border town in Finland. And they were all scheduled for execution the next day. Their reactions were quite different. Some of the men were beating on the wall and cursing God, these godless atheists. Some were crying out with loud wailing for their families just to see their children one more time, just to see their wives one more time. And then there was another man by the name of Koskinen. And let me share with you what his response was. He started singing this hymn in a wavering voice, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast, there by his love o'ershaded, Sweetly my soul shall rest. Hark, tis the voice of angels, born in a song to me, over the field of glory, over the jasper sea. And one of his comrades said, Where did you get that, you fool? Are you trying to make us religious? And let me read his reply. It's so good, I would not leave it to my memory. Comrades, listen to me a moment. When I first heard that song from the Salvation Army, I laughed too. But the song got me. It is cowardly to hide your beliefs. The God of my mother believed, the God my mother believed in has now become my God also. I lay awake last night and suddenly I felt that I had to find the Savior and to hide in Him. Then I prayed like the thief on the cross that Christ would forgive me and cleanse my sinful soul and make me ready to stand before Him whom I should soon meet. During the night, verses from the Bible and from the songbook came to my mind. They brought a message of the crucified Savior, of the home He has prepared for us, I thanked him, accepted him, and since then this verse has been sounding inside me. It was God's answer to my prayer. I could keep it no longer to myself. Within a few hours I shall be with the Lord, saved by his grace. And so the one who reports this story says, his face shone radiantly. And by four o'clock in the morning, you know what had happened? All the rest of that band of seven red communists soldiers had given their lives to Jesus Christ. They'd gotten down on their knees. In the face of death, they realized how puny they really were and how needful they were of Jesus Christ. That next morning at 6 o'clock, they were marched out between two rows of Finnish soldiers and they asked not to have their eyes covered. They wanted to see their executioners. In fact, they didn't even look at their executioners. They stretched their hands heavenward and they joined singing this hymn which Koskinen had awoken them with the night before. They went out to meet their Savior. Some of you need to have that kind of experience with Jesus Christ today, don't you? You need to know the Lord. There are many people here this morning who are not Christians. You may be a member of a church. You may have been baptized. The thief on the cross was never baptized. You may be going through the motions. You may have come to church every day for a long time. If you don't give your life to Jesus Christ realizing there's nothing you can do to earn or deserve eternal life, then you will go out into eternity without hope 
Won't you give your life to Him today?